This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. We never intended Radio Parallax to be a show that just comments on things in the headlines. But my God, when you look at some of the current headlines, well, it just invites commentary. So, comments we shall make. This correspondent feels that he has an advantage over, I guess you'd say, younger people in the audience, having been born during the Eisenhower era and paying some attention to what has gone on in the world of politics. Well, amazing things have happened over the decades. A rather screwy series of events starting in 1972 led to a president resigning the office. All sorts of criminal activity was involved in the so-called Watergate affair. The truth of what really happened in Watergate, by the way, we've taken the position in this program many times, has never come out. It is a much more complicated matter than one might gather from reading brief histories of the events. And so it is that today, what's swirling around the presidency, around Donald Trump, around Russian interference, around all sorts of aides being accused, tried, convicted... Well, it's not exactly new, but I have to say, even looking at what happened in the Watergate era, Trump is breaking new ground. It's a pretty amazing thing to contemplate that within about an hour of each other, two startling news items must have spoiled the president's day. His former campaign director, Paul Manafort, got convicted on eight counts of criminal activity, things which for the most part don't involve President Trump directly, but did come out of the Mueller investigation, since the things surrounding Manafort seem to trace right back to Russian oligarchs and things he did for the Ukraine and all sorts of, well, all sorts of illegal activity. Trump's comment was that, well, this is very sad. He has a lot of respect for Mr. Manafort. Of course, this has nothing to do with him. Well, we'll see about that. It undeniably has to do with the Mueller investigation, however, which apparently is not a complete witch hunt. Even the president's supporters probably would have to admit that at this point. And then there's the matter of a couple of alleged affairs, which the president still continues to deny. These activities done for the benefit of candidate Trump were clearly illegal per campaign finance laws. Although the president, although the president continues to deny that these things happened, his lawyer has in fact pled guilty to the charges. So extraordinary are these events that I think we're going to have to pull a couple articles from the Washington Post that kind of step back in perspective and just kind of do a little bit of a review of where we, where we stand. In fact, let's commence that immediately. First thing I'd like to comment upon is something we've commented upon many times previously on this program, the problems with the jury system. Here in America, being that we are an offshoot of British law, we tend to render decisions based on (laughs) 12 randomly impaneled citizens rather than rely upon the judgment of, say, trained legal professionals. Now, there probably are some advantages to this system. If you're guilty of a crime and you want to get off, it's a really good one because, as we've learned 
most recently hearing from the Paul Manafort conviction, the jury, at least 11 of the 12 members of the jury, voted to voted to find him guilty in 18 out of 18 cases. But one lone juror could not be convinced in 10 of the cases. Now, getting convicted on eight different charges seems, uh, seems pretty definitive, but the truth is, were it not for one juror, the prosecution would have been 18 for 18. Now, the fact of the matter is that once you're impaneled in a jury and you're turned loose to render a decision, you can do anything you want. According to a juror who told the story of what happened in their deliberations, in this case, a, a woman named Paula Duncan, well, she says that, oh, these prosecutors tried to make a case out of the Russian collusion right from the beginning. Of course, the judge shut them down on that. We did waste a bit of time on that shenanigans. So one should keep in mind that this trial that convicted Mr. Manafort, per order of the judge, barred both sides from broaching the topic of Russian collusion before the trial even began. We hope that in future judicial proceedings, that will be returned to. The juror Paula Duncan also said that jurors had some problem accepting the testimony of Manafort's business partner, Rick Gates. He also worked in the Trump campaign and was considered the special counsel's star witness. The Washington Post noted that that could be particularly worrisome for the special counsel's office if it hopes to use Gates to speak to other Trump-related wrongdoing in a different trial, such as the one Manafort is facing in D.C. next month. Of Gates, juror Duncan said, we agreed to throw out his testimony and look at the paperwork. So while it's true that Mr. Gates along the way has lied about a lot of stuff, we suspect he was for the most part telling the truth about his dealings with, for and with Mr. Manafort. But that's just our opinion. And now that Trump's lawyer, Michael Cohn, took a plea deal, uh, it's probably worth going back and reviewing the history of what was said about the hush money payments made to Karen McDougal and Stormy Daniels. Article in the Post by Glenn Kessler, titled The Fact Checker. I think this is worth going through in some detail. Note of the article, the first denial that Donald Trump knew about hush money payments to silence women came four days before the election. His spokesman at the time, Hope Hicks, said, without hedging, we have no knowledge of any of this. The second denial came in January of this year, when attorney Michael Cohn said the allegations were outlandish. By March, two of the president's spokesmen, Raj Shah and Sarah Huckabee Saunders, said publicly that Trump denied all the allegations and any payments. Even Michael Cohn's attorney, David Schwartz, got in on the action saying the president, quote, was not aware of any of this, unquote. In April, Trump finally weighed in. Answering a question about whether he knew about a payment to porn star Stephanie Clifford, who uses the stage name Stormy Daniels, he came back with a flat no. Noted the article, it's now clear that the president's statement was a lie and that people speaking for him repeated it. The article notes that one of the distinguishing characteristics of Donald Trump's presidency has been his loose relationship with facts. As of the beginning of this month of August, the Washington Post's fact checker has documented 4,229 false or misleading claims from the president. If you're keeping score, that's an average of 7.6 per day, every day of his presidency. Trump's allies have defended the president by suggesting that facts are debatable. Early in his presidency, one of his aides famously said he was operating on alternative facts. 
On this August 19th, Trump attorney Rudy Giuliani declared truth isn't truth. Now, how to characterize Trump's statements has become its own pitched political battle, with many of the president's critics demanding that they be called lies. Hello. The fact checker has been hesitant to go that far. They note because it is difficult to document whether president whether the president knows he is not telling the truth. We would have to editorialize here that that is a valid concern. It isn't a lie if you believe your own nonsense. At least not a lie in the way we think of being deceptive. It's deceptive, all right, but if you believe your own statements, well, anyway, that's a, that's a legal morass we don't want to stick our foot into. But at any rate, as of August 22nd, Saunders said during a White House briefing that it was a ridiculous accusation to say the president has lied to the American people. But notes the article by this week's guilty plea, Michael Cohn offers indisputable evidence that Trump and allies have been deliberately dishonest at every turn in their statements regarding payments to Daniels and Playboy model Karen McDougal. Here is the definitive story of a Trump lie. Let's go back to November 4th, 2016, four days before the election. The Wall Street Journal broke the story that the National Enquirer had agreed to pay $150,000 to McDougal, a former Playboy centerfold, for an account of an alleged affair with Trump, but did not publish it in part of a catch-and-kill, in quotes, operation. The publisher of the Enquirer, American Media Inc., issued a statement, quote, AMI has not paid people to kill damaging stories about Mr. Trump, end quote. Trump campaign spokesman Hope Hicks said, quote, we have no knowledge of any of this, unquote. What we now know. In August of 2015, David Pecker, the chairman of AMI, Michael Cohn, and one or more members of the campaign forged an agreement under which AMI would deal with the negative story about Trump's relationship with women by purchasing the stories and not publishing anything. That's according to the information filed by federal, federal prosecutors in the Cohn case. In court, Cohn said he took action, quote, at the request of the candidate, unquote, and knew it was illegal. In August of 2016, McDougal got paid $150,000 by AMA for the rights to restore AMI to the rights for a story, which the Inquirer never published. January 12, 2018, the Wall Street Journal exposes the $130,000 payment to Stormy Daniels. Cohn and the White House sidestep questions about the payment, but deny that an affair between Daniels and Trump ever took place. January 18th, White House spokesman Raj Shah dodges questions about Daniels telling reporters this matter was asked and answered during the campaign and anything else could be directed to Michael Cohn. February 13th, Michael Cohn tells the New York Times that he used his own funds to pay Daniels. Neither the Trump organization nor Trump campaign was part of the transaction with Ms. Clifford and never reimbursed me for the payment either directly or indirectly, he said. The payment to Ms. Clifford was lawful and was not a campaign contribution or a campaign expenditure by anyone. What we now know. In pleading guilty to two felony violations of campaign finance law, Cohn said he was reimbursed by the Trump organization. Court filings showed that the company grossed up, that's in quotes, the payments to cover Cohn's taxes and added a bonus for a total of $420,000 in payments according to the criminal information. 
March 7th, White House Press Secretary Saunders asserts the president told her he was unaware of the payments, saying, quote, I've had conversations with the president about this. There was no knowledge of any payment from the president, and he's denied all of these allegations. Adding anything beyond that, I would refer you to the president's outside counsel, Michael Cohn. March 9th, Michael Avenatti, Daniel's lawyer, discloses emails showing that Cohn used his Trump Organization email address when he arranged the $130,000 wire transfer. Cohn, for his part, told ABC News he used his own funds. The funds were taken from my home equity line and transferred internally to my LLC account in the same bank. He said the use of the Trump Organization email meant nothing because, quote, I basically used it for everything, unquote. March 26, Daniels appears on 60 Minutes to describe the alleged affair. White House spokesman Raj Shah says the president strongly, clearly, and consistently denied the underlying claims. March 28th, David Schwartz, an attorney for Cohn, told CNN that Trump was completely unaware of the payment, saying, quote, the president was not aware of the agreement. At least Michael Cohn never told him about the agreement. I can tell you that, end quote. Asked whether Trump was aware of the money, Schwartz affirmed, quote, he was not aware of any of it, unquote. What we now know is that Cohn, in making his guilty plea, said he worked, quote, in coordination with and at the direction of a candidate for federal office, unquote, which in case you're not following it is referring to Donald Trump, to make payments to Thwart McDougal and Daniels from telling their stories. March 29th, Schwartz tells NBC News Trump 100% did not reimburse Cohn. April 5th, Trump flatly tells reporters he did not know about the $130,000 payment. The exchange went like this. Reporter, did you know about the $130,000 payment to Stormy Daniels? Trump, no, no. Reporter, then why did Michael Cohn make the payment if there was no truth to her allegations? Trump, you'll have to ask Michael Cohn. Michael's my attorney. You'll have to ask Michael. Reporter, do you know where he got the money to make that payment, Trump? No, I don't know. What we now know, every answer given was false. Trump knew about the payment. He knew Cohn made the payment as part of an effort to kill damaging stories, and he knew Cohn was reimbursed. April 26th, the White House spin starts to shift after Cohn's office is raided by federal prosecutors on April 9th. Trump told Fox News, Michael would represent me and represent me on some things. He represents me, like with this crazy Stormy Daniels deal. He represented me. May 2nd, Rudy Giuliani tells Fox News that Trump paid Cohn back the $130,000 payment, but it could not be considered a campaign finance violation, saying, it's not campaign money, no campaign finance violation. Giuliani suggests that Trump was largely in the dark about what that money was used for, saying, he didn't know the specifics of it, as far as I know, but he did know about the general arrangement that Michael would take care of things like this. May 3rd, Trump tweets about the supposed arrangement. Mr. Cohn, he tweeted, an attorney received a monthly retainer not from the campaign and having nothing to do with the campaign from which he entered into through reimbursement a private contract between two parties known as a non-disclosure agreement or NDA, adding, quote, Money from the campaign or campaign contributions played no role in this transaction. What we now know, this was a lie. Cohn did not get repaid through a monthly retainer. 
He sought reimbursement for the payment, and the Trump Organization agreed to pay $420,000 at a monthly rate of $35,000, according to court filings. The company then falsely listed the payments in its books as a retainer for legal work. In truth, and in fact, there was no such legal retainer. The epilogue to all this is recently as August 22nd in a Fox News interview, Donald Trump sought to reframe the issue in the wake of Cohn's guilty plea, saying the payments didn't come out of the campaign. He said, they came from me. Noted the Washington Post, after months of denial and deception, Trump was still not telling the truth. Anyway, shades of Watergate. Isn't it time to start talking about impeachment? Now, the curious thing about Watergate, which is forgotten by most people, is that although the evidence was piling up against Richard Nixon having committed obstruction of justice to prevent the investigation of Watergate from going forward, people forget the fact that Nixon had bought himself impeachment insurance when he ran for office, which consisted of making Spiro T. Agnew, former Maryland governor, his vice president. It was widely believed that no matter what Richard Nixon had done in the way of obstructing justice in the cover-up. By the way, he didn't order the Watergate burglary. That's another story. He did cover up the whole issue, but that's, again, another story. No matter what he did, Congress and the American public seemed reluctant to make Spiro T. Agnew president of the United States. In a similar vein, certain people out there are reluctant to make Mike Pence president of the United States for similar reasons. Although I think in the case of Mike Pence, people are more worried about his, well, let's just call it evil nature, than they were about him being an Agnew-esque bonehead. But after bagging on Trump and the GOP for the last 16 minutes, let's take a little fork in the road, shall we? And take a look at the other side of the political aisle, the Democrats, and uh, (laughs) see if we can't probe through some of the bad news we're going to find there. Headline from the East Bay Times, Thursday, August 23rd, regarding the midterm elections. Headline is, Democratic candidates avoid talking impeachment. Subheadline, party viewing local issues as more important than a Trump distraction. The piece quotes Susan Wilde, the Democratic nominee, favored to win a key Republican House seat in suburban Philadelphia, saying, I don't want to see a two-year distraction. I think, honestly, impeachment proceedings would obviously derail getting other things done in Congress. No, Radio Parallax has no idea what Susan Wilde is referring to when she refers to getting other things done in Congress. Perhaps, dear listener, you can think of things that Congress is getting done. If you do, drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. There must be some. We're just hard-pressed to think of any. Which is not to say that our elected representatives, both in Sacramento and Washington, get nothing done. Our four-time governor, Jerry Brown, just signed a bill which passed the legislature, which makes surfing California's state sport. Article by Julia Protis Sulek in the East Bay Times noted that Jerry Brown last Monday signed the legislation into law making California's state sport surfing adding that for a state that brought the world the beach boys gidget and the wetsuit elevating the iconic california pastime to an official state sport is well pretty gnarly if you ask around some of the local surf shops 
Now, as some have pointed out, only a tiny portion of California residents surf as opposed to bicycle (laughs) or most anything else you want to mention. Now, it is true that California does host the Surfers Hall of Fame, the International Surfing Museum, and the California Surf Museum. And I do have to note that we have a slight sympathy for this uh, silly issue by noting that it was Jack O'Neill who pioneered the neoprene wetsuit. And O'Neill's surf shop still down there in Santa Cruz. So, what the heck? Well, let's return to the fact of legislative inaction, Congress doing nothing. You cannot argue that the California legislature has not taken action when it comes to making things California's official fill-in-the-blank. For example, here's a short list of some of California's 35 official symbols and emblems. Our official amphibian is the California red-legged frog, whereas our official animal is the California grizzly bear, extinct, we would add, since 1927. It is on California's state flag, but they shot the last one over 90 years ago. California state bird is the California valley quail. Our colors, in case you're keeping score, are blue and gold. I did not know, in fact, that California has an official state dance, but it is the West Coast Swing. We also have an official fabric. That would be denim. Our official fish is the California golden trout. Our official flower is the golden poppy. Our official folk dance, who knew, is (laughs) the square dance. That, we would remind you, is the official folk dance, not to be confused with the official dance, which, as we mentioned, is the West Coast Swing. We don't know how they manage to keep track of all this in the legislature, but somehow they manage. We have an official Gold Rush ghost town in California. That would be Bodie. We have an official insect, which is the California dog-faced butterfly. Now, surprisingly, although we apparently do not have an official reptile, we do have an official marine reptile, which is the Pacific leatherback sea turtle. Our legislators found time to designate an official pet for the state of California, which apparently is any pet you find in your local shelter. Our official theater, we don't know how this got designated exactly, is the Pasadena Playhouse. And this correspondent has attended plays there for the benefit of talking about them on this program. It's a pretty cool theater. Hard to find fault with that one. But we do have some issues with why California had to have a designated state soil. And if you wish to obtain some California official state soil, you're apparently going to have to dig up some San Joaquin soil. And no, we don't know whether if you walk south of Sacramento into the San Joaquin Valley with a shovel, you can just dig up some official California soil. But for more information, we suggest you check with your legislator. Mr. Millen suggests that we lobby here in Sacramento for possible designation as California's official radio broadcast. Now, we've talked about plastic pollution on this program many times and what an issue this is as it's now becoming clear that plastic in our environment is breaking down into 
nanoparticles, which are, you know, a million years from now, someone's going to be able to identify this era from strata in the oceans based on that marker. It's a bad deal. It should be addressed. Apparently, five Asian nations are contributing the vast bulk of crap that's floating around on the Earth's seas. But rather than lean on those Asian nations, apparently our legislators are taking action by trying to ban the plastic straw. Now, it's true there are alternatives to plastic straws, including ones made out of metal, glass, paper, and even corn. And maybe we should look at using those in the future. But really, when it comes to plastic pollution, how big an impact do you think straws really make? On a more serious note, California's lieutenant governor, Gavin Newsom, appears to be poised to become California's next governor, despite his debilitating medical condition of pneumocranium, which is a term we, in medical school, used to use when we referred to someone who had a lot of air between his ears. Now, well over a decade ago, we talked about Gavin Newsom's move during the critical moments of the 2004 campaign to, when he was San Francisco mayor, issue marriage licenses to gay people on the steps of City Hall. How many voters in red states this galvanized to run down and vote for George Bush? Well, we have no way of estimating. But we thought at the time, and still think to this day, that probably wasn't a real astute move on Gavin's part. It surely did not help John Kerry's efforts that November, which, despite his best efforts, saw the election stolen again by the Republicans. As documented on Radio Parallax, he would refer you to the many shows we did back in 2004 on this topic, talking to people like Bob Fitrakis. And what can you say about a guy whose ex-girlfriend is now dating Donald Trump Jr.? We just don't think this reflects good decision-making on Gavin's part. And uh, we'll have more to say about the lieutenant governor's office in our second segment. But in the minute we have left, I want to instead mention the fact that state Democrats are now seeking to delay the hearings for Brett Kavanaugh becoming the ninth Supreme Court justice. Kavanaugh has some odd legal opinions regarding the power of the presidency. As far as we can tell here at Radio Parallax, he favors the divine right of kings and presidents. So making this clown a Supreme Court justice may not be the best idea right now when decisions are going to have to be made in the future about whether a president must comply with subpoenas from prosecutors, whether he can be indicted while in office, etc., etc., etc. And seeing how it was that Merrick Garland is not in the Supreme Court and Neil Gorsuch is... We would like to see the Democrats play a little hard ball with their uh, Republican colleagues across the aisle. We think some very hard ball might be in order if they've got the cojones, which all evidence suggests they do not. But we'll see. One thing we know for sure is that we've got lots more to talk about in the next segment, so please do not go away. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett.